if you would, open your Bibles to the book of Revelation in the 20th chapter. Now, I know many of you rely on the screen and, and that for the, the verses, and that's fine. If you do have your Bible, you may want to have it open today because I'm going to say things, and you're going to say, no, that might not be true. And then you look, and you say, oh, sure enough, it's just like that. So uh, just have it in front of you, uh, and, and, and we'll talk about it as we go through. Um, so the s- subtitle for this message, of course, the, the series is The Revelation of Jesus Christ, Worship and Witness in a Winner-Takes-All World. Uh, the subtitle, The Why, Where, and What of the Millennium. And we'll be using the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation for our text. I'm going to read initially here from the New International Version, uh, since that's what most people sitting in, in most churches at least have. I don't know what this, I haven't surveyed this church, but most people have, and so we'll go from there. Uh, plus, I happen to like it. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> beginning in verse 1. Just real quick. Uh, John writes, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient, that ancient serpent, which is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead and were in it. Uh, that were in it, and, the, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The, the lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, all of it is holy, and all of it is good and profitable to us. Lord, we pray that you would 
enlighten our hearts to understanding that good part, that good meaning, that truth from your, this text that is to transform us into the image of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in a series in Revelation. We've got two more messages, this one and the next one, to finish out that series. And then we're going to focus on some different things for this coming year. Uh, But you can't really leave a series in the book of Revelation and not talk about the millennium. But at least this you should notice. I have gotten all the way to chapter 20 and working through the book of Revelation, and it hasn't come up yet. Arguably the most debated chapter, the most talked about chapter, the most argued over chapter in the whole book of Revelation. And we haven't even discussed it yet. In fact, nothing I've said would would not be believable. In other words, let me put it in the positive. Anything I've said could be believed by somebody, whether they're premillennial, all-millennial, or postmillennial. There's nothing in what I've said that would, would prevent you from being in any one of those particular uh, positions, having those particular positions uh, in, uh, regarding the millennium. So, regardless of what are the three views you hold, that's okay. We can agree on 98% of the book, at least, if you know, we just read it and try to understand it for what it is. And of the seven or eight authors that I've re- used as a resource in studying this book, I haven't checked their positions on that matter, uh, nor did I care to. I happen to know the view of one of the authors for sure, because I knew it from past history, having been through their commentary. And the other one, there's another one that I'm pretty sure I know their view, but I haven't even bothered to check with the others, because I don't care what their position is regarding the millennium. It has nothing to do with why I'm studying their resources, because I'm looking at how they're engaging it in relation to the original audience and the culture of the time and the meanings and the images and apocalyptic literature and so on and so forth. So, regardless of how you interpret this chapter, whether you agree with me or disagree with me today, it has little bearing on how we understand the rest of the book. Now, that doesn't mean I don't think it's important, okay? But there are some things that, as one author put it, we write in, 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 in blood, like we're willing to die over those. There's other things that we write in ink. They're really important, but we could be wrong. And then there's other things we write in pencil. Well, this is a pencil matter, okay? <laughs> so we might have to erase it and, and work our way forward, and, and, and it's just one of those kinds of things. <clears throat> Dividing over this chapter as believers would be downright silly. Um, but <clears throat> here's reality. I'm a pastor. I said I was preaching through the book of Revelation, so at some point I have to tell you what I think about this chapter, or I'm not, I'm, I'm not being fair. And that. So let's just cover some basics. Maybe you don't know anything about the book of Revelation or the millennium. So millennium is simply a term that means 1,000 years. You won't find the word millennium in the text, but you will find the phrase 1,000 years in the text. And speaking of 1,000 years, that phrase is, or millennium or anything like it, is mentioned in one place in the entire Bible, and it happens to be this chapter. There is nowhere else in the entire, entirety of Scripture where it is mentioned or anything alluding to it specifically uh, with any level of specificity. And, and so that's important to, to be aware of. Now, it is repeated six times within this text. So, okay, there's that. But it happens to be in a cha- one chapter in a book that is the most symbolically and figurative, you know, symbolic and figurative book in the entirety of Scripture. I, I, that, that would be hard to argue with, I think. Um, 
And I will attempt to avoid saying things about the millennium which cannot be supported in the verses themselves. Now, to be honest with you, if you limit yourself to talking about the millennium to the only place that's mentioned in the Bible, which is Revelation 20, truth is, you don't have a lot to say. You, you can't describe it very well because very little is said factually. And so we will look at what is and isn't said, and a lot of it what isn't said, because I think that's relevant to understanding it. Um, but what most people believe about the millennium by and large, I, mean, I say most people, I haven't done an actual survey to be clear. When I have conversations with people, my experience tells me that what most people, at least at the, the cultural level, the, you know, the, the everyday level, believe about the millennium, you can find none of, nothing to support those views in chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. So just be aware that whatever views you arrive at, I would just encourage you to check them against what the chapter actually says, since it is the only place where it is, in fact, mentioned. Um, and I'll do my best not to say things about it that I couldn't support from the verses themselves. Now, before jumping in, um, it's important to remember that no one actually takes the book of Revelation chronologically, like the beginning to the end is like everything's in sequence. And we noted this when we were in chapter 12 because it was so clear, because I think everybody agrees, I don't think there's a scholar that would debate that in chapter 12 we have the birth of Christ, we have the death of resurrection and ascension of Christ. And so clearly, since prior to that we have things that refer to God's judgment and, and, and final outcome, clearly the book is not arranged chronologically. That each vision could either continue from a previous vision or could be starting over a new time frame or a new chronology um, from the beginning, if you will. And, and so keeping that in mind. Um, so whatever we read in chapter 20 doesn't necessarily follow what we read in chapter 19 or 18. And, and, and what follows chapter 20 doesn't necessarily follow chronologically what we read in chapter 20. And, and we just have to keep that in mind. So let me just define a couple of terms, and I won't spend much time here, but I just want you to kind of be aware of the basic landscape. There are three views, largely speaking, regarding the millennium. First one is called premillennialism. And it assumes that the events of Revelation 20, that they call them, we all call the millennium in some level, occur after the events of everything else in the book. And, and so in that view, you, you would have that Jesus returns the first time. Okay, so you have basically three comings, but you, you, Jesus come, the second coming is followed by a 1,000-year period. Uh, generally it's held that this is a time of peace and you know everything is wonderful on earth and he's reigning from Jerusalem. Um, you know, I don't want to put words in people's mouths, but that's generally how it's presented uh, accordingly. And then that's followed by uh, the great white throne judgment and so forth. Okay. Uh, Amillennialism uh, and postmillennialism both believe that Revelation 20, verse 1, restarts the clock, as it were, back to the first coming of Christ. Amillennialism, which literally means no millennium, that's what it means, but it's not accurate since its opponents named it that. They didn't name it that. It's the people that didn't agree with them. They named it that. So it's not a very good name, but it is what it is, okay? It's what people call it. and So it, it is uh, 
the belief that the reign of Christ, the millennium, if you will, the reign of Christ began with his ascension, and that those who are faithful, those who overcome, are seated with him and reigning too. Now, all Christians actually believe that, because every Christian believes in the ascension, and that Christ reigns now. The distinction is, is that people who are all millennial believe that and don't believe in an additional 1,000-year period where that happens on top of that in some other form, fashion, or another. So all Christians actually believe in the truths that all millennialists believe. They just don't call it the millennium. Okay? It's just basic Christian theology, if you will. Um, and then post-millennialism, it's a view that a rose in the church came into being and arose in, in keeping with the enlightenment and progress of humanity. And it's this view that, and it comes in a couple of forms, but I'll give it a, a brush stroke here. Um, that, that, that the church will bring in a golden era of peace and justice to the world before the return of Christ that will last for a very long time. Now, some more historic postmillennialists believe that that millennium will follow a long period of church history where we finally reach this era of peace and then the millennium begins and then after that Christ returns. Others believe that the millennium began with the coming of Christ, more like a non-millennial person would, but that it will bring this era of peace and justice on earth and everything will be sweet and wonderful and then Jesus will return. Okay, So you've got amillennialism, postmillennialism um, views. Now, I'll tell you straight out my position. You might be able to tell from how I presented it, and I can't avoid that, uh, is amillennial. Okay? And, and you'll, I'll explain why as we walk through this. And again, it affects our interpretation of the rest of the book virtually zero. So it's okay. <laughs> Whatever view you, you hold to, it, it's, it's, it's okay. Um, so with that brief overview in place, let's just explore the text. Um, and, and I, I think what is a pretty simple way, why is Satan bound for a thousand years? Where are the thrones? These are just the questions we're going to try to answer. What is the first resurrection? And finally, why does it matter? You know, what difference does it make? Okay. Um, so why is Satan bound for a thousand years? Let's just read those first three verses again so that we have them freshly in our mind. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him, to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. You likely recall the story of the demoniac uh, of Gerasenes or Gadarenes. Uh, it's, it's given a few different names, actually, in Scripture, and that's okay because if you've ever been to countries that have been occupied by foreign entities, every town has two or three different names at least. Uh, Donna and I in Madagascar, it's hard to keep town straight because everybody calls it by one name or another, and they just kind of mix it into their... But they know what they're doing. We don't, you know. <laughs> And, and uh, because the French were there and, you know, Malagasy and then the tribe and, you know, so everything gets multiple names. Similarly, this place, Gerasenes, has multiple names. But Jesus and the disciples land their boat in the dark of the morning still. The sun has not yet come up. The disciples had just got through crying out, Lord, we're going to die. Aren't you worried about us? 
They woke him up. He was asleep on a pillow. And, 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 and he, he asked him, why, why are you so afraid? And he figures, well, see, they're afraid of death. How do I show them not to be afraid of death? Oh, I've got a great idea. I'm going to bring them to a cemetery in the dark of night where there's this guy that screams day and night. And he's such a maniac that when they try to chain him up with chains, he just breaks the chains off. That's a great place to go to deal with the fear of death. <laughs> and so he brings them there. And they, as they're getting up to the shore... You know, they can see, because cemeteries back then weren't flat places with plots of ground. They were generally cliffs or mounds and that kind of thing. But the cliffs that they had, they had little caves dug out in the cliffs, and that would be a tomb. And so you'd walk along the side. And so here's this guy running up and down, screaming out, crying out, cutting himself, doing all sorts of things. And they're thinking to themselves, you know, I might want to go back out in the sea and get that storm started again. <laughs> But these, this guy comes up to Jesus as they land on the shore and come out of the boat, begging him not to torment them and not to command them to go into the abyss. Now, what's an abyss? Well, we use it, you know, not that often, but we use it enough to know that it's a really deep place. You might refer to places in the ocean that are as an abyss, right? Because it's the, the deepness of the sea that, that brings us there. Um, and, and so it's, it's um, an immensely deep space associated in their world. They, they understood it as being associated with another world, hostile powers and death. So it, uh, maybe, um, it, it, it can refer to the depth of the sea in their world and in ours. And, and so they beg Jesus that instead of being cast into the abyss, that they go into a herd of pigs. And so he gives them permission. Now you immediately know, if you don't already know because of a map... And in and, and, and history, that Gadarenes is a Gentile area because there's a herd of pigs, not kosher, okay? So not a Jewish area, a Gentile area. And so you, you know that. They beg to go into the herd of pigs. They go into the herd of pigs, and what do the pigs do? They run off the side of a cliff and into the sea, the abyss. <laughs> So the very thing they're begging not to go into is the very thing they end up in symbolically. Why? Because the point is that it is inevitable you are going into the abyss. You're going there. Whether you like it or whether you don't, you're going into the abyss. Um, That story and our chapter may well help explain one another. What we often forget as 21st century Gentiles by birth Christians is what was the most shocking thing, earth-shattering, earth-shaking truth of the Christian faith in the first century. The kingdom of God in Christ is open to peoples of all nations. The nations are no longer blinded in mass by the God of this world to the gospel. That is one of the central truths of your entire New Testament. The whole book of Galatians is centered around that. Let's take Ephesians. How about Romans? I mean, we could, we could go on and on. It's all over our New Testaments. And much of the Gospels address kind of symbolism toward that end as we understand the Gospels. Paul speaks of those for whom the Gospel is veiled by the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4. He and his co-workers, he says, do not lose heart in their Gospel ministry because hearts are being enlightened by the Gospel and are no longer veiled, but, he notes, Even for those in whom it is veiled, they are perishing. 
He speaks of if they are an exception for God who said, Light be in the darkness, and has now shown in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How did he do it? Through the gospel. So when the, when the gospel is proclaimed, it's God saying, Light be, and dark hearts are opened up to the gospel. Um, dark hearts are opened up to the gospel. Now this leads to an important question that we must ask in our chapter. Why is the ancient serpent, the deceiver from the garden, that's what ancient serpent is referring to, the snake in the garden, the devil, Satan, why is he bound for this 1,000 years? Well, it actually tells us. Now, most assume that he is bound in order to not be able to do anything. But the text very explicitly defines the purpose of his binding. We see it in verse 3. To keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. Then again in verse 8. When the thousand years have ended, he is released and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. So you have it both in the positive and in the negative. Why, why is he bound? To keep him from deceiving the nations. What happens when he's no longer bound? He goes out and deceives the nations. Okay? So you have it both times. So it is a very specific binding for a binding him from accomplishing a very specific thing. So it, it doesn't stop him from producing cancer and people or, or, or other things that he might want to go about setting about evil in people's lives. It doesn't stop him from doing all sorts of terrible things that God will use for his glory and turn into good despite all of that. What's intended for evil, God turns to good. We, we, we know that. We believe that. And he's still out there doing that. Everybody who's an amillennialist doesn't think we're in some sort of utopic kingdom that lasts for a long time. Even though they think we're in the millennium, they just don't attribute all those other things to that particular thing because they're not attributed to it here in the text. Uh, the purpose of this binding, once again, the nations are no longer blinded in mass. Well, that's great news, isn't it? That's actually the great news that you find all through the New Testament. That, that God is being, bringing His people in from the nations to, to create His messianic kingdom, His new Israel. Thanks be to God. Um, it may be important to also note what is missing in the chapter. Any description of what life on earth is like during this time. There is no description in Revelation 20 of what life on earth is like during the thousand years. Keep in mind, John is still viewing things from heaven's perspective. He... he he, he's this whole visionary experience, starting in chapter 4, verse 1, and even before that in many ways, but certainly there, is John viewing things from a heavenly perspective. There are no lions and lambs mentioned in the chapter, and no lifespan indicators, all of which are commonly as described as the millennium. In other words, people describe the uh, millennium, they, you know, it's, it's often symbolically pictured as lion and lamb laying down together out of Isaiah. But that's out of Isaiah, not Revelation 20, and there's nothing mentioned in Isaiah about a thousand years. Or it's time after a return of Christ, or anything like that. So, if we just want to read the text for what the text is saying, we have no description of what life on earth is like during that time. So, often when people hear that some people believe that we're in the millennium now, they have a puzzled look on their face, understandably, because the word millennium is defined by this very wonderful, period, utopic period of time on earth. But if we don't have that definition, if we just go by what the text says, we don't have to assume that. So, well, it could be, 
right? It could be that because we don't know what, what it's like on earth uh, to be sure. Um, most of the descriptions of the millennium don't actually exist in Scripture as descriptions of the millennium. They may be there about something, but not necessarily as descriptions of the millennium. Um, what we have in Revelation 20 is actually all we have is a description of the millennium in Scripture. Uh, and if, you know, we, we, we start with a, a timeline, typically, I and mean, this is what we tend to do with things. We, we have a view of how things are going to be. We read a text like Revelation 20, and then we say, how does that fit into my timeline? Okay. But if we just ditch the timeline and just read Revelation 20 for what it is, knowing that the chronology of Revelation is all over the map, then we don't have to fit it into that particular timeline. Okay, second question. Um, so, so why is Satan bound for a thousand years? Where were the thrones? Where were the thrones? Um, verse 4. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mar- its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and re- reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So where are these thrones upon which those who have been given authority to judge are seated? It, look at the text. Can you find in the text anywhere where it tells us where they are? You might say, What? I mean, are they in Jerusalem? Does it say anything about them being in Jerusalem? Are they on earth? Are they in heaven? Here's my point. It doesn't say. It could be in any of those places. It doesn't say anything about where they are. And that's important to remember. Okay? It's important. Now, they're reigning with Christ, so wherever he's reigning, we should assume that's where they are, right? But... We aren't told where Christ reigns. In fact, we're not even told that Christ is on a throne, though we know from other places that he's at the throne, and the only throne mentioned is the one in heaven, chapter 4 and forward. It's mentioned repeatedly through the book, is that Christ is at the throne that's at the center of heaven. So if we were to make any assumptions about the location of Christ's throne from the book of Revelation, we would have to make an assumption that it's in heaven. Okay, that would, the only, Because nowhere else is the throne of Christ mentioned that it is anywhere else other than there. Um, so, so that's important to know. Um, so if, if they're not on earth, which they may not be, certainly nothing saying they are, then they would have to be in the heavenlies. And that leads to a, a secondary question, and that's when will believers reign? And I think if we answer the question of when will believers reign, it kind of helps answer the question of where their thrones are. Okay? So... When do believers reign? I just look at Jesus and a couple of places in Paul's writings to, to look at that, that question. Jesus spoke to the disciples. You may remember in Matthew uh, chapter 19, after Jesus um, you know, tells the rich man, you know, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and he walks away sad. How hard it is for the rich to get into the kingdom of heaven and, and, and so forth. And, and Peter answered saying, we've left everything to follow you. What's in it for us? And um, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Now, at the renewal of all things, that's the NIV, there are a variety of translations. The word there, it's just one word, it's regeneration. Or it could be translated rebirth. That's what regeneration means, is rebirth. And so, rebirth. At the rebirth, at the regeneration. It's used one other, that specific word is used one other time in the New Testament, and that's in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us, not because of righteous things we, we had done, but because of His mercy, He saved us through the washing of rebirth, regeneration, and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It was a word that was used in, in Jewish world in, in their time, in Hellenistic Jews, to speak of the Messianic age, which, of course, began at the first coming of Christ. So, the question we have to a- answer is, do the twelve apostles sit on t- thrones, ruling now from heaven, or will they one day in the future only? In other words, they have to wait until some future period to sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, that's a place where people might divide theologically. I think biblically, my, my, my own position is perfectly consistent with the New Testament to say that they are reigning, ruling and reigning now in heaven over the 12 tribes of Israel, which, by the way, 10 of which are made up of Gentiles. I won't get into that today, but that's clearly made out in Scripture uh, because they're being gathered back from the nations as such. Um, and so I think they're doing that right now, which is why we are an apostolic church. The 12 apostles are still involved in our gathering to worship. You know, you say, well, they're dead. Well, no, actually, we don't believe they are if we are Christians. So they're very much alive. Um, Paul wrote the Ephesian believers that, you know, speaking of the power that was in them, the power that was in them is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So where is Christ seated? At his right hand in the heavenly realms, that's a position of ruling, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So there, again, we see that, and, and, and that's why I say all Christians believe that Christ is reigning now if they believe Ephesians chapter 1. You, you can't not believe that Christ is reigning now and believe Ephesians chapter 1 at the same time. Paul wrote to Timothy in um, 2 Timothy 2, and he says, Here is a trustworthy saying, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. So when will we reign if we endure? Do we have to wait until after the bodily resurrection, after the judgment when all believers are gone? And if so... What's the point of our reigning since all the unbelievers are gone? What are we reigning over? Just a question. When we die, are we just sitting around heaven playing harps, or do we continue to play a role in the kingdom of Christ and what he is doing to bring about his will being done on earth as it is in heaven? I think the latter. Now, while I can't tell you what that will look like, because I haven't actually been there yet, I believe that to say that we do continue to play a role is the only possible answer that I can derive from the New Testament. 
And then we get to the third question, and then some concluding points. What is the first resurrection? Note at the end of verse 5 and verse 6, it says this. This, this, this ruling and reigning with Christ, this reigning with Christ, that's the this, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, and they will be priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with him for a thousand years. I think knowing the answer to what is the first resurrection is helpful for understanding what this chapter is trying to communicate. And and to answer that, I think there's four questions we need to, to answer. What is the first death? It mentions a second death. That implies a first death. So what's the first death? What's the second death? What's the first resurrection? It mentions that. So then we have to ask, what's the second resurrection? Because by saying a first, after having just said second something else, he implies a second resurrection. So just looking at that. So the, the, the second death, according to verse 14, follows the great white throne judgment. And at that point, it says that all the dead in Hades awaiting final judgment are thrown into the lake of fire. They've been awaiting judgment. They're now judged. They're thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second death. So these people had already died bodily. And they now are dying perpetually, if you will in this lake of fire, as the text describes it. Logically, then, if the first death is our bodily death, and the second death is the lake of fire, so it just kind of follows. The first death, then, is the bodily death. The second one, the lake of fire. However, the second resurrection, if these have passed the first resurrection, well, what's the second resurrection? Well, it's the resurrection of the body. That... We all are raised. All, the, 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 all are raised and are judged according to what they've done in the flesh, we are told. But what's the first resurrection, if that's the second resurrection? Well, John tells us elsewhere. John 5, verse 24 and 25. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life or the life of the age to come and will not be judged but has what? Crossed over from death to life. That's resurrection. (laughs) Crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you a time is coming and has now come. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. Amen. So those who believe in Christ are part of the first resurrection. The second resurrection being that of our bodies. Which will come later. To, To be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. But we won't be absent from our body forever. We'll get a new body, right? We'll be fully human once again. Um, Only those who believe in Christ receive eternal life, the life of the age to come. Prior to the thousand years being over, they aren't resurrected at all. Okay? Uh, The qualification for the martyrs uh, under the altar to reign with Christ is to have partaken of the first resurrection, which is to say that they believed in Christ. Okay? There's nothing about how the millennium is described in Revelation 20 that prevents it from going on right now. In other words, it's very possible. Let me just just put it out to you this way. It's very possible that Christ is reigning at the right hand of God right now. Don't we all believe that? It's very possible that all believers who have been faithful are also reigning with Him right now. Very possible. And you might say, well, I don't believe that. That's fine. Believe as you'd like. I'm just saying that this is a very plausible thing. 
And given that we're told nothing else about the millennium, to be sure, I would argue that it even leans in the direction of probable. Of course, that's because I think it's right. So, you know, take that for what you will, okay? I mean, do with it as you please. Get the pencil out and erase it if you'd like. I, you know, it's in pencil. It's not in ink or blood, okay? Um, and I can tell you that after having held this position for now, let's see, middle of the 1980s, so whatever that puts it, that's a long time, you know? <laughs> yeah, 40 years, right? That just makes me sound old. Let's just go with conjecture. It's a long time. Uh, <clears throat> uh, having held other positions, it is, in my mind, the most consistent with everything in the New Testament. That, that it actually helps it all come together and make sense. But again, that's just my opinion on that. So, um, what, what? So, what are those who take part in the first resurrection doing? Well, they're evidently living as a kingdom of priests and reigning with Christ during this time. In fact, it says that they're priests to God. So, and we are a kingdom of priests. We're told that in Revelation 1. That's what we're called to do now, and apparently even after we're passed into heaven. <clears throat> now, what may have been significant about a thousand years in the first, late first century? I mean, thousand is a cubed number. There are a few cubed things in Scripture and in Revelation. Uh, the, the, the New Jerusalem is cubed in its dimensions, okay? Uh, the, the, sanctuary, uh, the Holy of Holies is cubed in its dimensions in the Old Testament. So, cubed things in other places are that place where God and man dwell together, okay? They're that place where God and man dwell together. Now, obviously, cubed, 10 times 10 times 10, you take a complete number, 10, it's a number of completion, times 10 times 10, you perfectly complete long period of time, a thousand. Okay? And a thousand doesn't seem as big to us. I mean, it used to be a million was big. Now it's a billion, maybe a trillion. You know, as the bigger we work with numbers. But to them, a million or a thousand was more like a billion. I mean, it, you know, it's just this like big number in, in, in their thinking. Okay? You have to add inflation today. Um, <clears throat> but living in the Roman Empire... Um, the thousand-year reign, the cubed number, which they would have understood it as, is an assault on the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. You see, in Rome there was an altar, in Rome itself, an altar of Augustan peace. Um, that's how the name of it translates, altar of Augustan peace. And it was a cubed-shaped monument with highly decorated walls which marked Rome's faithfulness to its God-given mission to rule the world and to bring peace. Jesus' rule and reign with those who are faithful to Him is an assault saying, you didn't succeed. Hey, Augustus, you brought peace by the sword. And that's no peace at all. You crushed your enemies. That's no peace at all. Jesus is the only one who brings true peace. And it is His reign that brings true peace. And I, I think that's a message we don't often hear about the millennium, regardless of when it is, that is important for us to understand. And I think it's certainly true to say that that is the reign that will bring peace today, as well as it will in the future, because no other reign will actually accomplish that. Why does it matter? Now, just a few minutes, just kind of give you a few why does it matter kind of closing thoughts. Well, it doesn't matter as long as, you're, uh, regardless of your position, 
that you believe at least these three following things. Okay? Christ reigns now at God's right hand over everything in heaven and earth through the church. Um, spiritually, not like, you know, political ruling and control over the affairs of human people. Second, Satan can no longer blind the nations, so the gospel is God's means of bringing the nations to himself and increasing the kingdom of Christ to the ends of the earth as, he was, promised in the, as was promised in the prophets. And thirdly, that we continue to live in order that things might be on earth as it is in heaven. That things might be on earth as it is in heaven and we don't wait for Jesus to come back and fix it all magically at some future point. But that we set about doing His will on earth as it is in heaven so that things might be on earth as it is in heaven, that the kingdom might be made manifest. And it doesn't matter as long as you don't believe one of these two things. As long as you don't believe that our job is to rule the earth through political power, to include the power of the sword, to force people to live according to the laws of the Old Testament, or to worship Christ, that can only be done by faith. I could spend a whole six-sermon series on that point, but I won't. Second, um, as long as you don't start randomly assigning Old Testament promises of the kingdom to some futuristic period of time rather than understanding that Christ calls us to do His will on earth now, that His kingdom is manifest now. And I'll give you an example. We talked about the lion laying down with the lamb. That is not a literalistic picture of a future period where actual lions lay down with actual lambs. I don't think any Jew would have understood it to be that. Um, but a call for people that were formerly children of rage, to put it in the language of Ephesians, to live at peace. It's not animals he is concerned with, if I might borrow from Paul in another place, but with his people that he is concerned. And, and lions lay down with lambs in the church. That's what we're called to do. Now, it doesn't always work out because occasionally lions just turn around and bite a big old chunk out of the lamb. And the lambs go running somewhere else, right? We all know that. But it ought to be a place, and it's certainly our goal that it be a place, and it is our prayer and our utter desire and yearning that it is a place where lions and lambs can dwell together in peace. Amen? Swords being beat into plowshares is not a future thing, but it's our call to live for peace in Christ's kingdom today on earth as it is in heaven. So, if, if, if you can embrace those beliefs and not embrace those false lies that sometimes keep us from doing God's will, then I don't really care what you think about the millennium because it won't matter. And that's okay. I've just presented what I think is true and I hope it's helpful to you to, you to at least hear that, you know, that, that, that presentation. I've had a number of people tell, a number of pastors that I've asked, some famous, some less famous. Hey, what's your position on this? And, and, and it, the most common answer I get is, well... I'm historic premillennial, but honestly, I've never studied it. It just seems to be the easiest answer to, to, to go with. I get that, but we ought to. We ought to. Anyway, let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for your words. Help us to understand them more fully. And most importantly, Lord... The end of the command is love, so whatever we've learned today, may it produce love in us and not discord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.